For nearly two months, they'd been wandering through the icy wilderness. Their food supply having been depleted days earlier, they'd had to rely on the weakest of the sled dogs for sustenance. We had grown so fond of our dogs, the leader later recalled of the grim decision. There was depression and sadness in the air. Still, the team was grateful for this nourishment, and they pressed on, knowing full well that they'd come too far to turn back. Whatever the outcome, by God, they were going to do it or die trying. task was monumental, absurd. For years, people have been talking about seeking out the geographic South Pole deep within the interior of the Antarctic continent, but the very idea of such a journey proved to be too perilous to attempt. People had, of course, ventured to Antarctica before, with the first known sighting having taken place in 1820, when a Russian expedition led by Captain Fabian Gottlieb von Bellinghausen had explored, circumnavigated, and ultimately mapped its rugged coastline. Seventy-five years later, the first landing was made, when seven sailors aboard the Norwegian whaling and sealing ship, ironically named the Antarctic, set foot upon the continent. But it wasn't until two years later, in 1897, that the first expedition dedicated solely to Antarctic exploration and research was launched by the Belgian government, with the ship, the aptly named Belgica, staying a year to record and observe the continent's weather, geographical features, and wildlife. Led by Adrien de Gerlache, the first mate on this journey was none other than Rual Amundsen, the Norwegian explorer who 13 years later would embark on his own journey to Antarctica in the hopes of locating, at last, the famed South Pole. I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host. Join me as we tag along for this most epic ride, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. The era in which this fateful expedition took place has come to be known by the romantic and, in my opinion, awesome moniker of the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. Set between 1897 and 1922, it kicked off, if you will, with the aforementioned Belgian expedition. This led to several successive journeys and attempts to explore the continent's vast and rugged interior, some of which proved to be quite fruitful, while others were disastrous failures. Of them all, however, perhaps the boldest and most ambitious of these was that which was undertaken by that very same Norwegian who served as the first mate on the Belgica, Rual Amundsen. Born in Borga, Norway in 1872, a thirst for adventure gripped him from an early age, no doubt spurred on by the fact that his family was almost entirely comprised of captains and shipowners. At the age of 15, he'd read the British naval officer, Sir John Franklin's, accounts of expeditions to the Arctic, adding fuel to the flames of his appetite for wanderlust. But his mother, realizing the hardships and perils of a seafaring life, encouraged the boy to pursue a different career entirely, that of a doctor, a promise he kept to her until her passing when he was 21 years old, at which time he promptly quit his university studies in favor of maritime exploits. His first voyage, when he was 25, was his first mate aboard the Belgica. It was on this expedition that he was formally bitten by the curiosity bug, the effects of which he'd never be cured. Six years later, in 1903, he'd lead his own expedition for the first time. The journey, which consisted of a crew of six men, excluding himself, would see him successfully traverse the Canadian Northwest Passage between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans on a 45-ton fishing vessel known as the Gyoya. By venturing through Baffin Bay, which separates Canada from Greenland, the ship made its way through Perry Channel, cutting through the present-day province of Nunavut in the Canadian Arctic. While wintering on King William Island, the crew picked up invaluable survival skills from the indigenous Netsilik Inuit, which would prove to be vital in his later South Pole venture. Some of these included traveling over ice and snow via sleds pulled by dogs, as well as the wearing of animal hides and skins in favor of woolen parkas so as to better keep out the cold and damp. 
Two years later, in December of 1905, they'd reached Alaska's Pacific coast, having been the first people in history to successfully cross the Northwest Passage. In a letter to the new king of Norway, Hakon VII, Amundsen boasted that his accomplishment was, quote, a great achievement for Norway, and that he hoped to do more, unquote, for his homeland in the way of discovery and exploration. Needless to say, he would. Following this triumph, the now-celebrated Norwegian explorer turned his attention to Antarctica, particularly the South Pole. His initial plan had been to locate the geographic North Pole in the Arctic, but he was beaten to it by American explorers Frederick Cook and Robert Peary in 1909. At the time Amundsen was planning this trip, another explorer, Captain Robert Falcon Scott of the British Royal Navy, had publicly expressed his own interest in locating the South Pole and, quote, claiming it for Britain, unquote. What ensued was a bitter rivalry and essential race between the two to see who could reach the destination first. Commissioning the ship Fram, forward in Norwegian, which had been used in previous Arctic and Antarctic expeditions, Amundsen and a crew of 19 men disembarked from Oslo on August 9, 1910. Accompanying him were three naval lieutenants, who would serve as the expedition's officers, Hjalmar Fredrik Gertsson, Thorvald Nilsson, and Christian Presterud. Despite having no medical experience, Gertsson was appointed the ship's doctor. In preparation for the experience, he was given a, quote, lightning course in surgery and dentistry, unquote. At Presterud's recommendation, a naval gunner, one Oskar Wisting, was brought along for his broad knowledge and expertise on a variety of tasks, and was given charge over the 100 Greenland sled dogs that would serve as the transport on the overland journey. The rest of the crew was formed by Olaf Bjaland, a professional skier, Helma Hansen, a sled dog driver who had sailed with Amundsen on his Northwest Passage expedition, Svera Hassel, a dog expert as well as veterinarian, Jürgen Stuberud, a skilled carpenter whose talents would help build the base of operations once they made landfall, and Adolf Lindström, the cook on the Gioia. There would only be one stop on the journey, and that was Madeira, a Portuguese island off the northwest coast of Africa. On September 6, 1910, almost exactly a month after their departure from Oslo, they arrived in Funchal, the island's capital. After a brief stopover of three days, they made to depart on the 9th, but not before Amundsen sent a telegram detailing his plans to Robert Falcon Scott, whose own expedition to Antarctica had departed from Cardiff in Wales on June 15th that year. Beg to inform you, from proceeding Antarctic, it read simply. Upon receiving word of the Norwegian explorer's intentions, Scott responded to his superiors in Britain with a cable of his own. We shall know in due course, I suppose, an ominous reference as to who would get there first. The race was on. Four months later, on January 14, 1911, after a long and arduous trek south, the Fram arrived in Antarctica, on the eastern edge of what was then known as the Great Ice Barrier, now the Ross Ice Shelf, located along an inlet called the Bay of Whales. Making landfall on the snowy coast nearby, the crew set about establishing a centralized base of operations, which Amundsen dubbed Framheim, literally the home of Fram. In addition, they set up supply depots that they could use en route to the continent's interior, placing them at 80, 81, and 82 degrees south of the pole along a planned route. This took a few months, and by the time they'd finished these tasks, they had to wait for the harsh winter to pass before embarking on their journey, which they did on September 8, 1911. But this first attempt would prove to be troublesome. Due to the cold temperatures, even colder than usual if you could imagine, they had to abandon the venture. So that the time didn't prove to be a total loss, Amundsen instead sent two of his men to explore a vast swathe of land to the northwest of their base camp, known as King Edward VII Land, in which they were able to successfully map out the terrain, becoming the first people ever to do so in the process. Finally, a little over a month later, on October 19th, the conditions seemed right to try again. Setting out with a five-person team that included Olaf Bjaland, Helma Hansen, Svera Hassel, 
Oscar Wisting, and Amundsen himself. They equip themselves with four sleds packed with supplies, each of which will be pulled by a total of 52 dogs. Following a route along what's now the Axel Hybra Glacier, which the team themselves discovered, they arrived at the edge of the Polar Plateau a month and two days later, on November 21st. The last leg of the journey, however, proved to be the most treacherous. With their food supply dwindling, there wasn't enough to go around between the men and dogs. With heavy hearts, Amundsen and his men were forced to slaughter some of the weaker dogs so they could survive. Meanwhile, by the end of the month, Robert Falcon Scott and his team, aboard a ship known as the Terra Nova, had made landfall in Antarctica, albeit 60 miles, 96.5 kilometers, further from the pole than Amundsen's base camp at Framheim. Despite the odds being against them and the increasingly precarious situation in which they found themselves, Amundsen and his men pressed on, finally arriving at the site of the South Pole on December 14, 1911, an entire month before Scott's crew could get there. Of the 52 dogs with which they'd set out, only 16 remained, some having died due to the harsh conditions, the rest having been killed and consumed by Amundsen and his men. Weary and exhausted but triumphant, they set up camp in what they called Polheim, home of the Pole, building a makeshift tent with a letter inside proudly declaring their accomplishment in the event that they didn't survive the return journey to their base camp at Framheim. They renamed the entire plateau King Hakon VII's Plateau in honor of the King of Norway. Sure enough, the team would return to Framheim on January 25, 1912, with only 11 remaining dogs. You could probably guess what happened to some of them. From there they packed up shop, so to speak, and disembarked for Australia, where they landed in Hobart, the capital of Tasmania, a little over a month later. On March 7th, Amundsen made public his success, speaking with Australian authorities and telegraphing his backers and friends back home in Norway. Upon receiving word of this, there was nothing Scott and his men could do but concede to defeat. They had, after all, been beaten by the Norwegians in reaching the South Pole first. What exactly made Amundsen's expedition so successful where others had failed? It all had to do with preparation. Not only had he gathered his team of skilled and hardy men to complete this most monumental of tasks, but he'd also known what equipment to bring, the proper clothing to wear, and above all, a knowledge of sled dogs and how to utilize their skills to traverse and navigate Antarctica's notoriously rugged and savage terrain. While there were, indeed, other terrific epic examples of study, research, and exploration of the fabled southern continent during the heroic age, Amundsen's is perhaps the greatest of them all, one that's still talked about and will undoubtedly continue to be for generations to come. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed embarking on this exciting adventure to Antarctica with me. This was a nice departure and escape for me, as the summer hasn't quite yet given way to autumn where I live and it's still quite hot. In short, Antarctica sounds nice right about now. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to show your support for continued content, please consider becoming a supporter. Just visit my website at anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button, which will redirect you to three monthly support plans that fit any budget. Listening and sharing, of course, also help in big ways, so please do so wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'll be taking next week off for a holiday, but join me the following week, in two weeks' time, that is, for The Shot Heard Round the World, an event that triggered one of the biggest and greatest revolutions in world history, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you then. Thank you.